0: If you would grab a Bible and open to Luke chapter 6, where we've been for several weeks, Uh, the Bible in front of you will be on page 1187, and then we will be transitioning to 1 Corinthians chapter 5, that's on page 1313, but we're going to begin in Luke 6 and pick up where we uh, were last week. In this uh, most famous uh, passage in all of Scripture, I would say probably the most uh, quoted scripture, especially by those outside the church. Um, and I can give some reflection in a few moments about why I think that is. But um, I want us to read together Luke 6, beginning in verse 37. Luke 6, verse 37. Jesus says, "'Judge not, and you shall not be judged. Condemn not, and you shall not be condemned. Forgive, and you will be forgiven.'" Given, it will be given unto you. Good measure pressed down, shaken together and running over will be put into your bosom. For with the same measure that you use, it will be measured back to you. And then he spoke a parable to them saying, can a blind man lead the blind? Will they not both fall into the ditch? A disciple is not above his teacher, but everyone who is perfectly trained will be like his teacher. And why do you look at the speck in your brother's eye and do not perceive the plank in your own eye? Or how can you say to your brother, brother, let me remove the speck that is in your eye when you yourself do not see the plank that is in your own eye? Hypocrite, first remove the plank from your own eye and then you will see clearly to remove the speck that is in your brother's eye. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word, Lord. Thank you for the clarity with which you bring it to us, God. Thank you for the precious gift that the Bible is, Lord, and how it instructs us in such practical ways, Lord, and gives us a blueprint, Lord, for life in this kingdom of God, Lord, that you have established through your son, Jesus Christ. And so, Father, I pray that you would now use me as your mouthpiece, Lord. God, uh, will you just take away all my own words and, Lord, just... Speak through me freely to these people that you love so much. We're grateful for what you'll do. In Jesus' name, amen. Now, if you read the Bible very much, it won't take you long to come across some, what may appear to be some inconsistencies. Now, let's just go through a couple of these as we're dealing with this issue of judging others. You know, if we, as I said a moment ago... Probably will hear that one verse quoted by those outside the church more than any other passage of scripture. I mean, obviously, I think to us it would probably be John three sixteen that's the most known verse or memorized verse among believers. But outside the church, uh, most people couldn't quote John three sixteen, but they know, "Judge not, lest you be judged." They say, hey, "Don't judge me." Now you know, Jesus somewhere he said that. I'm pretty sure. And so they'll quote that. And here's the thing. Why is that? Well, we could say that's probably because they don't want to be judged. But I don't want to be judged either. No one wants to be judged. Probably the reason why that's the most quoted passage of Scripture is because it's been so abused and misunderstood mainly by believers throughout the course of history. And so what we're doing is just uh trying to make sure that we as a family of faith understand the concept of judging others uh, what to do and how to and what not to do very clearly and very plainly and so if you were to read the new testament for example in the book of Matthew Matthew chapter 1 of uh, chapter 7 verse 1 you hear this same phrase from the sermon on the mount where Jesus says judge not lest you be judged now that's Matthew 7 you go on to Matthew 9 and it seems like, well, Jesus says don't judge, so let's not judge. It's just a happy day. Everybody's gonna, gonna get along and Jesus has come to just make, speak peace and kindness to everyone. We get to Matthew chapter 9. And the Bible says in verse 9 that Jesus passed from there and he saw a man named Matthew sitting at the tax office and he said to him, follow me. So Matthew arose and followed him. Now, what you need to understand is that Matthew is a tax collector and tax collectors were the most crooked people in all of society and they were definitely the most hated by the Jews because they were stealing from their own people and then giving to this Roman oppression that was ruling over them. And Jesus walks up to who in the crowd but Matthew? The Bible goes on to say, now what happened is Jesus sat at the table in the house. Now, here's the question. What house? He walks up to the table, tells Matthew, the tax collector, to follow him. The next verse says, now Jesus is sitting at the table. Matthew's table. Jesus has now not only asked this crooked, rotten tax collector, Matthew, to follow him, but now he's sitting at his table in his house. And behold, many other tax collectors were there, and sinners came and sat down with Jesus and his disciples. Verse 11, and when the Pharisees saw this, the religious people who were uh, self-righteous and making up their own sort of rules in religion and then condemning others for not living up to it, shouldn't sound familiar, but it does... And when the Pharisees saw it, they said to his disciples, Now, why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? And when Jesus heard that, he said to them, Those who are well have no need of a physician, but only those who are sick. Now, as you're reading through this, you're thinking, Well, you know what? The message of... Matthew must be that Jesus has just come with this message of not judging anyone and it's all going to be happy and good. And he's chosen this Matthew character to be one of his inner circle and he sits at his house and eats with all of his, you know, scumbag friends and all the religious people are outside wondering what in the world's going on. But you just keep reading the Bible. It just keeps getting better. Then... Uh, you get to Matthew 9.13, and Jesus says, now go and learn what this means. Now then, then, you know, when he starts out with that, you know something good's coming. He tells the religious leaders who are supposed to know everything, know what this means. I desire mercy, not a sacrifice, for I did not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. So we read on, we get to Matthew chapter 23, and here comes some action in verse 27. Jesus speaking to the Pharisees, these same people that he said, now go and learn what this means. He says, Woe to you teachers of the law and Pharisees, you're hypocrites. You're like whitewashed tombs, which look beautiful on the outside, but on the inside you're full of dead men's bones and everything unclean. In the same way, on the outside you appear to people as righteous, but on the inside you are full of hypocrisy and wickedness. Now, I don't know about you, but that sounds like he's being awfully judgmental. Then he goes on to say this, just in case you thought Jesus just had a slip-up, In verse 33, he says, "...you're snakes, you brood of vipers. How will you escape being condemned to hell?" I don't know if there's a more judgmental statement in all of Scripture than that one. And so what's going on here? You see, this this is the tension in this issue that we as the body of Christ must get right. We must understand what the Bible is teaching. When Jesus addresses this issue of judging others, what is underneath it, what is at the base of it, is this issue of hypocrisy. The word hypocrisy in the Greek is the same word, it's synonymous with the word for actor. A hypocrite is someone who acts to be something that they're not, who puts on a show, who who pretends to be something. And we said last week that hypocrisy is absolutely the world's worst form of evangelism. There is nothing that makes the gospel look worse than hypocrisy. A critical, judgmental, condemning attitude will repel people from the gospel. Paul said in 1 Timothy 1, he said, for this reason I obtained mercy, that in me first Jesus might show all long suffering as a pattern to those who are going to believe on Him for everlasting life. We need to be patient and we need to be long suffering as Christ was with us as we show a pattern of everlasting life to the world around us. But that has not always been the case. Many times the church takes the stance of what we're going to do is we're going to retreat, we're going to huddle together, we're going to condemn the world around us, we're going to make it hard for you to get from the outside to the inside, but once you get on the inside, anything goes. We're just going to love each other and we're just going to support each other and we're just going to nurture each other and you can just live it up all you want to, but we're not going to live like them out there. That's hypocrisy, folks. That is utter and complete hypocrisy. And it establishes this sort of uh, elitism that is not found in the gospel. And this this attitude towards uh, those on the outside was never the attitude of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And so many times over, churches try to uh, condemn the world while establishing this own planet of religion where it is to them the judgment-free zone. You can figure that out later. Understand that God is outlining a lifestyle that makes the gospel believable to outsiders. That's what the Sermon on the Mount is doing. So I want us to look in 1 Corinthians chapter 5 as the Apostle Paul is going to really break this down as how we're to... to uh, relate to one another within the family of God, and he's going to make it very, very clear. Because my concern was that if we just left off where we ended last week, that a couple weeks from now, uh, I might hear someone within the church saying to a brother or sister, well, you know what? Don't judge me. Now, Jesus said, don't judge. And, And that would upset me because that's incorrect. Okay, So if you weren't here last week, I encourage you to go on the website and listen to the sermon from last week so you understand exactly what judge not lest you be judged means to the way we relate to those outside the church. This morning, we're going to look at how that relates to those inside the church. 1 Corinthians 5, beginning in verse 1, we're going to see first, Paul's going to outline the two problems. And so in this, we're going to see the the confrontation is going to begin. 1 Corinthians 5, 1. Paul said... It is actually reported that there is sexual immorality among you and such sexual immorality as is not even named among the Gentiles that a man has his father's wife. Now, we just stop for a moment and uh, spend a few minutes here. I'll try to keep this as PG as I possibly can. But the Bible here is is just laying out the reality of sinful man, okay? And here we have a situation where... We presume that this is the man's stepmother that he is having a relationship with. The reason we think that is because it says your father's wife and not your mother. So we're trying to give him the benefit of the doubt and say this is probably his stepmother maybe. Maybe it appears that uh, the dad has died and is no longer alive. Or the father and this stepmother have been divorced because Paul uses the word sexual immorality or fornication instead of the word adultery. And if his father was still married to the woman and still alive, it would probably be adultery. Now, would it not? But here's the question. Does any of that matter? It's just gross. Right? I mean, does it matter? Stepmom, real mom, divorce? I mean, that's just bad. Okay? Anytime... You're in a romantic relationship with somebody you once could have previously or currently called mom. That's sick. It just is bad. There's something bad going on in this church. Okay? So Paul's uh, choice of words, sexual immorality, in the Greek this is the word pornea where we get the word pornography. So this is a very serious indictment. And uh, this man... Has the Bible says, his father's wife. In other words, this wasn't some past event. This wasn't some one-time indiscretion. This is an ongoing and is currently still going on circumstance within the church at Corinth and Paul is writing to get things straight. Verse 2. Enough of that. Verse 2. And you, your response is puffed up and you have, have not rather mourned that he... Who has done this deed might be taken away from among you. Now, the first problem is, is that you've got this man, uh, romantically engaged with his mom. The second problem comes up in verse two, which is that the response of the church is first of all, they're puffed up, meaning they're prideful. In other words, they're not, uh, they're not Completely grossed out about this situation. They're not reacting to this situation in a negative way, but they're, they're proud of it. I guess because if you're on the inside, hey, you're on the inside. So whatever you do as long as you're on the inside is fine because you're on the inside. And, and secondly, they've not mourned. Now, we covered this last week. I said in great detail that you make a fatal mistake whenever you go to approach someone about a circumstance or a situation in their life when you have not looked inwardly and it does not grieve you of the situation that you're going to talk to them about. Remember that conversation? Now, this week, we see that within the church, Paul calls them out specifically because they have not mourned. Now, listen. This isn't rocket science here, okay? When someone in the family of God is engaged in something that is expressly forbidden in Scripture, the first thing it ought to do is break our heart. If it doesn't break your heart, then nothing else I say this morning applies or matters to you. Because if you miss this step, everything that follows is going to be wrong. You're going to go in self-righteousness. You're going to go in your own pride. You're going to go out of anger. You're going to go out of some other reason. But we must realize that the beginning response is a broken heart. They're in our family. That's your brother. That's your sister. It should break your heart when they are acting in a way that is contrary to Scripture. Okay? Secondly, you got to do something. You can't just stand back and be idle. Notice he says that, that he who has done this deed might be taken away from among you. In other words... There is an an action that must follow. You should have a broken heart. You should have no pride. A broken heart. And then you've got to respond. Because if you don't respond, then what does that say about the way you feel about this individual? Continues. Verse 3. Paul says, For indeed, as absent in the body, but present in spirit, I have already judged as though I were present him who has so done this deed. Now... You can underline in your Bible in verse 3 this word judge. This word in the Greek is "kreno." This is the exact same Greek word that you'll find in Luke chapter 6 verse 37. The same word. This isn't some different kind of judging that Jesus says judge not lest you be judged. Same exact word. So Paul here has judged. You see this? He's judged. He's He has He has already said, hey, listen, I've judged. He's exploded this myth that the way we're to respond to one another is just overlook everything and say, well, brother, I just love you. It'll be okay. No, no, that is not at all what Scripture teaches. And here's another thing you need to see in, in verse three. Where is Paul? He's not there. See, here's what we do a lot of times in the church. We will encounter a brother and sister who, who are in sin, who are, 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 are away from the will of the Lord, and we will start making up excuses to not have to go talk to them, because let's face it, it's not fun. It's not something you look forward to. But oftentimes, we will s- start with the excuse that, you know what, I'm not I'm not real close to them. I don't know them real good. You know, I haven't spent a lot of time with them. Therefore, I'm probably not the one that should go talk to them. Paul's not even there. You understand? In other words, the issue is not how well you know somebody. The issue is, are they your brother or sister? Are they in the family? That's the issue. If they're in the family, then that's your brother or sister. Then you must respond to them. See, we we and I just mentioned that because our hearts want to look for a loophole. We we want to get away from this. We want to get out of this. And I understand that it's a difficult thing to talk about, but at the same time, listen, as we go through this, it will become more and more apparent to you with each verse that God is calling us to a supernatural love for one another, and we cannot make excuses. We simply cannot make excuses. Now we're going to see the motivation. So we see the confrontation. Now the motivation. Verse four. Paul says, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, when you are gathered together along with my spirit, with the, with the power of our Lord Jesus, deliver such a one to Satan for the destruction of the flesh, that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord Jesus. Now, this phrase in, in verse five, deliver such a one to Satan for the destruction of his flesh, is it gives people a lot of problems. It really, it's kind of a startling uh, collection of words. And when you read it, especially in our English uh, vernacular and our understanding, it it gets a little, uh, it sort of sets us back like, well, whoa, I mean, I mean, if somebody walked up to you and says, Hey, we're just going to deliver you over to Satan. What? What does that mean? And And how can that be loving? Well, understand in the context of what Paul is saying here that the the spirit is the inner man the flesh is the outer man the 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 bible never confuses the two always is scriptures relating to the inner man or the fleshly man the inner man or the outer man discipline always comes in the form of physical discipline right i mean it's the outer man so satan has no power to touch or to harm the spirit of the believer in any way. Okay? That shouldn't be new information to you. Alright? Because if he did, then you would you would be in a string of bad theological thoughts. I mean, first of all, if the spirit within you as a saved person could be harmed in any way by satan then your salvation would be anything but secure right right i mean it's not like satan's just going to take a day off because you you know belong to christ he's going to do whatever he's able to do whatever he can do to cause you harm and to cause you problems and to to hurt you but he cannot hurt the spirit okay the flesh on the outside like i explained last sunday night that our Inner man that is renewed at salvation is incarcerated in this flesh, in this outer temple. So later on in Luke 12, Jesus is going to say, My friends, do not be afraid of those who kill the body and after that have no more that they can do. You see what Jesus is saying here? He's saying, listen, don't don't fear what can only hurt the body. If you belong to me, what matters, what's eternal, what goes on forever, that is within you, Cannot be hurt by the enemy. It is once and for all victorious and it is infinitely more powerful than the enemy who tries to attack. Okay, so in 4, we see now Paul doing the same thing Jesus did in Luke chapter 6. We're back to the same question of why. You see, when we were dealing with judging those outside of the church... Jesus kept presenting us. Remember in verse 41, he said, and why do you look at the speck in your brother's eye? Jesus says, what is your motivation for wanting to see this speck that's in your brother's eye? And again, we're now... Paul is turning us back. Paul commands us to hold each other accountable within the church. Why? Why? Look at verse 5. The end. That his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord Jesus. Okay, so church, understand... What Paul is laying out here is not some open license for punishment, uh, one against another. It is not some open license to go around and begin uh, judging and condemning others. It is a prescription for restoration. That the reason and the motivation is that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord Jesus Christ. And what happens is, is he's saying, you turn your sinning brother over for the destruction of the flesh that Satan will begin to torment him out in the world. In other words, this brother who is in a, an incestuous relationship, right, with his father's wife, Paul says, here's what you do. If you go to him and you confront him and you talk to him and he won't listen to you and then you take someone else with him and you talk to him in love and say, this isn't going to go good. This is going to be painful. This is going to be bad. And he won't listen to you. And then you go before the church and you say, listen, we need to do something. We need to talk. This isn't going to go good. And he refuses to listen. Then what do you do? You see, you you don't just say, well, well We tried. No. You don't do that. You turn him over because the best thing that could happen to him would be to suffer the consequences full on of his actions because guess what's gonna bring him back to the foot of the cross? You see? God's calling us in love to relate to one another in such a way that we bring about restoration. And the reason that Paul says that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord Jesus is because if he's a Christian, if you are a Christian, you need to understand something. No matter what happens to you in this life, no matter what illness, sickness, no matter what horrible circumstances, even unto death, you will be saved. You see, it's not, there's a difference between the inner man and the outer man. The spirit that resides within us cannot, it cannot be harmed by the enemy. But here's what can be harmed. When we, as believers, act foolishly, we bring about consequences of sin on our life, do we not? And we bring about pain in our life, do we not? And, and... The thing that that astonishes me so many times is that we are great as believers about giving testimony about in any any form or fashion in this room, we could go around and begin to give testimony about how we came to Christ. And in that testimony is always going to be this element of I was going my way, I was doing my thing, I was living my life and things were not working. And it was a catastrophe. And slowly everything unraveled around me. And some way, somehow, the circumstances of what your sin had led you into got you to the place where you realized you only had one hope, and that hope was Jesus Christ. Now listen, if that worked then, then don't you think that for those of us who are saved, if we decide and make some decision to be rebels against what God has told us to do, Don't you think that the harm that we bring upon ourselves will yet again bring us right back to the foot of the cross? Of course it will. Of course it will. And you see, that's the loving thing to do. To not do anything is to just say, well, just keep going. No, no. Galatians 6.1 Paul says, brethren, if a man is overtaken in a trespass, you who are spiritual restore such a one in a spirit of gentleness. In other words, with a broken heart, you come with a, with a, with a, a hope and a heart for restoration, considering yourself lest you be tempted. In other words, understanding that, you know what, in the blink of an eye, you or me could be right in that situation. Yes, the, 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 the problem is, is that the Pharisees would come and say, well, how could you act in such a way? Oh, well, how could you do something so repulsive? Well, how could... Well, listen, I say, well, I could do that. I could do that. Apart from the grace of God in my life, I could do that. But you see, I need the Lord to to show me, uh, to renew me and to to teach me how to think and how to live and how to relate. And so when I come to a brother or sister who is in sin and who is struggling and who is hurting, my heart needs to be broken. And I come with a heart of restoration. And I come saying, listen, I'm not here to judge you. I could be you. I could be you. But for the grace of God, I'm able to come and talk to you as your brother and say, listen, I love you and I want to help you. And let's walk together back to this path of restoration.'" So we see there's a confrontation, of motivation, but then an explanation. So here comes the, the nuts and bolts of this in verse 6. Paul says, Your glorying is not good, or your boasting, or your pridefulness. Do you not know that a little leaven leavens the whole lump? Therefore, purge out the old leaven, that you may be the new lump, since you truly are unleavened. We'll stop here. Now, let me just explain a couple of things. I know many of you in the room understand this issue of of leaven and bread and and what this means. And a lot of you ladies who uh, bake and, and make bread, you understand. But let's just get a biblical perspective on what's happening here. When someone bakes bread, okay, what Paul is referring to is the practice of baking bread. And what would happen is as the baking process would would go along, the lady would take a piece of the dough off of the lump and she would ball it up and she would store it in water and then she would bake the bread. And the next time she came around to bake bread, she would make a batch of dough and then she would take this old lump and she would mix it in as a starter. This sour dough would be mixed in as a starter as yeast into this new and she would replace it again with another piece. So she always had this old lump stored of sour dough and she would use that to put into her new batch. And it was this process that continually went over and over. So leaven is, represents this leftover from a former life that is drug into the new life. That's the way God sees this issue of leaven. It's not that, that what was old is not to be brought into what is new in the kingdom of God. And this leaven is sin. This leaven is is bad and so therefore if anyone is in christ he is a new creation all things have passed away behold all things have become new in other words there's no old in the kingdom of god right so when you when you are passed from darkness unto light when you become a child of god a son or a daughter of god you don't bring things from the old life into the new life and so god is saying you keep those separate are you with me Now the transition comes. This is where it all comes together. We'll finish up. seven, The second part of verse 7. For indeed Christ, our Passover, was sacrificed for us. Therefore, let us keep the feast, not with old leaven, nor with the leaven of malice or wickedness, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. Now, how do we transition from this leaven and bread, and now we're to the Passover? Well... If you recall in Exodus chapter 12, when God calls the the Israelites to leave Egypt, on the last day that they're in Egypt, what happens? God institutes this Passover. There's a lamb that is sacrificed. The blood of that lamb is painted on the doorposts of the children of Israel's homes. And then the wrath of God passes over, does not visit upon those houses because the, the blood that is on the doorposts is the Passover. Are you with me? And so once this Passover occurs, it's, it's as if that, well, the next day they wake up and Pharaoh says, get out. And so they leave. And so this, the blood of the lamb represents this passing over of the old life and this separation onto the new life. Okay? Are you with me? The sacrifice of Christ represents the separation of believers from The world, in other words, the old life and the new life. So you see that when God called the Israelites to leave after the Passover, He said, don't take any leaven. Now, why? He even said, before you leave Egypt, I want you to search through all your belongings and look through the whole house and make sure that there's not one piece of old that you carry with you. And then here we are all the way in the New Testament and Paul's saying, and what is this illustration? You don't carry the old into the new. That in Christ, this is a new life. In Christ, you're a new creation. In Christ, all those old things are gone and done away with and you don't bring those in. You don't carry those with you. You start over again. At salvation, God has called us away from our formal, futile way of living. It didn't work. That's the whole idea here. And so this concept of this, that, that you can sort of come to Christ and just add Christ to, to who you are and it'll make you better. no. No. It's all new. It's completely new. It's a it's a revolution, okay? You now have this incorruptible seed, this inner man, this new spirit within you, God's spirit within you that cannot be harmed and you don't bring old leaven into the new life. And so that's what Paul's illustrating here. He has... Jesus Christ has delivered us from the power of darkness and conveyed us or changed our citizenship into the kingdom of the Son of His love and whom we have redemption through His blood, the forgiveness of sins. This is a whole new existence in Christ. And so with this issue of relating to one another in the family, it is very important to understand that you know what? We come into the family... And we begin to grow in the family. And certainly, you, it's hard in the beginning, is it not? I mean, I, I testify all the time of my early walk with the Lord. And here I am, I'm, I'm in my twenties, I have no church background, God radically saves me, I begin to walk with Him, and listen, those first months were shaky. I mean, I, I didn't know what I was doing. I was, I, there was many times where I would, read the Bible or hear a sermon and go, I didn't know I wasn't supposed to do that. I mean, it was new to me. And what I needed was people to come along and help me and nurture me and guide me because my tendency was to sort of want to drag this old leaven with me into the new life. But you can't do that. You can't do that. God God is is setting up a family... To prevent us from doing that, to help us. And so the issue here with talking to one another about sin in our lives, all right? Is not how we feel. It is the supremacy of Christ in all things. In other words, when sin is overlooked, we take the place of our Lord who decides what is and is not acceptable in the kingdom of God. Does that make sense? Yes, God is supreme, He is the Lord. When we overlook things that he said, what we do is we put our place in the position of judge and Lord, which we never want to be. So the issue is not how we feel, it's the supremacy of Christ. The issue is not how we feel, it's the sacrifice of Christ. When sin is overlooked, we take advantage of the cost that was paid for our forgiveness. You see, to overlook sin is to just negate or reduce the price that was paid in order for you and I to be forgiven. You see, that's what's so heinous and terrible about sin. Especially committed by a forgiven person. Listen, look, think of the cost that was paid in order for us to be forgiven and then to overlook it is just absolutely horrific. It's not how we feel. It's the spectacular nature of the gospel. When sin is overlooked, we make the gospel appear weak and impotent by our hypocrisy. You see, here's what happens. The world out there is watching. They're watching the church. And they're watching to see us fail. They're watching to see us relate to our circumstances. They're watching to see us take advantage of our opportunity to be hypocrites. See, that's what they're watching for. Because here's what happens. Every single person who doesn't know Christ but who knows that Karen Childers loves Jesus Christ with all her heart, soul, mind, and strength. Every single one of them finds out she has cancer and they're watching. They want to see, well, well is she, what's she going to do now? Remember when they were around Jesus when He was being crucified? Well, He saved others. Why doesn't He save Himself? In other words, the same question will be coming at her. Well, you you trust Jesus? Well, He's in control. He's the Lord over the universe and everything. And, and, and you have cancer. How do you explain that? How do you react to that? Let's see if she quits coming to church. Let's see if she if she just turns her back on the Lord. Let's see how she's going to respond in that situation. That's what they're waiting to see. And guess what, family? They're waiting to see how do we relate See, how do we relate as we pray and seek the face of God? And then we, hallelujah, praise the Lord, are able to celebrate that there's significant improvement. Amen. But here's the thing. There's still cancer there. Right? So is it a failure? I mean, is it did we flunk the test? That's what the world wants to know. In other words, who are you, Christian? What is this all about? And let me tell you what the world loves to see. You know what their favorite thing to see is? It's the, it's the, the pastor caught in a homosexual relationship. They love that. They love the religious leader who's found out to be a complete hypocrite whose life is filled with sin. They love that. That's the ultimate. And right under that is you. They want to see you fail. They want to they catch you after work, after you've been talking about the Lord coming out of the quick mark with a 12-pack. That's what they want to see. Because as soon as they see that, all their guilt and condemnation goes away because you're just a fraud. You see, then they think, oh, well, all that stuff I felt bad about, well, it's okay now. Now listen, there's dangers on all sides of this. Because here's the danger that, we, that some of you have already stepped into. Oh, well. Well, God must be calling us to be perfect. No. That's the whole point of this whole passage. You're not perfect. You're never going to be perfect until you get to heaven. But here's how you relate to one another until you get there. You see, we're going to fail and we're going to stumble. The issue is, what do we do with one another? How do we love each other as we encounter these problems? Will we be prideful? Will it break our heart? Will we do nothing? Will we make excuses? Or will we be a true brother and a sister who come to one another in love and in truth and sit down and say, But for the grace of God, it would be me. Now let's work together and let's come out of this. Let's come home. And in the worst case situation, when all else has failed, the most loving thing we can do is turn that brother or sister over. Because here's the thing there's no, listen, if they're really a brother and a sister, what's the fear? What's the danger? Nothing can hurt the spirit. So you turn them over and pray that what Satan can attack, he will attack to bring them back to the foot of the cross. So we've got the confrontation, the motivation, the explanation, and then finally the differentiation. This is important. Verse 9 and 10. Paul says, I wrote to you in my epistle not to keep company with sexual immoral people. Again, there's so much here. So many things that people get wrong. So many twisted ideas. Oh, well, uh, okay. Let's well, see. They already knew this, but evidently they got this totally wrong. They said, well, we're not supposed to be around sexually immoral people. Bob here is having an affair with his mom, but he's in the church. So that's fine. But all those, you know, perverts out there, we don't want to get around them. But it's so common. Verse 10. Yet I certainly did not mean the sexually immoral people in this world or the covetous extortioners, idolaters. Since then, you would need to leave the world. I mean, Paul's trying to crack a joke here. You'd have to leave the world. So, we all understand this principle in our own lives. This is not new information. It's just new in the context of the family of faith. Let me try to illustrate. Paul here is saying, listen, when I say... Don't keep company with the sexually immoral. I don't mean them outside the church. I mean, seriously. You'd have to go to Mars. Now, there are Christians who want to go to Mars. I know that. And they want to try to build a compound with a 20-foot fence and have a little Jesus culture in there and get all their food air dropped in and everything's good and there's no sin there. And that's just absurd. It's utterly absurd. Listen, the call is to live the gospel in front of the people who need to hear it. What good would we all do locked up behind fences? Listen, you know what? I, I want you out and about in the highways and the byways living for Jesus Christ amongst the worst of the worst. That's what I want. And when you're out there, certainly don't expect them to act like you act. I mean, can't you just hear it now? There's Brother Wade. Well, here's the thing. I'm not ministering the jail anymore. Well, why not, Wade? Well, they keep cussing. But I guarantee you there's people in churches, not this one, somewhere who wouldn't go to the jail and minister because they might hear a bad word. Great evangelism strategy. But see, this isn't new. We know to treat people in the family differently than people outside the family. Amen? Yeah, think about your own family. Try this out. The next time you're in the grocery store, Okay, and there's a kid in front of you with his mom, and he's trying to grab all the candy bars off the rack that the you know the, the the sinful people at the grocery stores put right at child level. Have you ever thought about that? So anyway, the kid's got like 14 Snickers bars and his mom's going, no, put them back. And he throws them on the floor and then gets all the other... And finally, he melts down on the floor and he's kicking and screaming and and having a complete temper tantrum. Why don't you just do this? Scoop him up and spank him. See how that goes for you. You see, he's not in your family. You don't relate to people outside the family the way you relate to people inside the family. Now, you know that in your own family context. I mean, uh, fellas, tomorrow's what? I'm just trying to help you here, guys, okay? I don't have time for a lot of marriage counts. I'm trying to help you. Tomorrow's Valentine's Day. Now, let me tell you what not to do tomorrow, okay? Don't have flowers sent to your neighbor's wife because you were afraid he was going to forget. See, that's that's out of bounds. That's not your wife. That's not in the family. you got to relate to the people in your family in one way and the people outside the family in another way. Well, it's no different here. You are in my family. We relate differently than I do to people outside the family. It's common sense. But see, when we get this line tangled up, when we get this differentiation mixed up, we get into all sorts of problems. And the devil has a heyday in the church. Verse 11. But now I have written to you not to keep company with anyone named a brother who is sexually immoral in the family or covetous or an idolater or a reviler or a drunkard or an extortioner. Not even to eat with such a person. In other words, we got to take a different stand with those inside the church. For what have I to do with judging those also who are on the outside? Do you not judge those who are on the inside? But those who are on the outside, God judges. We saw that last week. That's God's responsibility. Therefore, put away from yourselves the evil person. Listen, if we as a church family do not understand that God has called us to love people, all people, but not the same. We love each other inside the family differently than we love those outside the family. So you see, if you're here this morning and you're new to this thing and you're just visiting church and you're thinking, man, whoo, I don't think I can make it here. I got all kind of problems." That's great. We're glad you're here. We love you. But let me tell you something. If while you're here visiting, if you see one of us out there living in a way that's counter to what you even in your understanding of the Bible is, then you need to let somebody know. We need to fix that problem. We need to deal with that situation because that is repelling people from the gospel. You see, it's different. We love people in the family in a very different way then we love those outside. You see, to those outside, the Bible says in Philippians chapter 2, that we're to do all things without complaining and disputing, that you may become blameless and harmless, children of God without fault in the midst of a crooked and perverse generation among whom you shine as lights in the world. That's our job. But inside, family members have a responsibility to be rescuers. That's our responsibility. That when you're in the family, when, when it's your brother or your sister, we need to be a rescuer and we can't say, well, it's none of our business. Yes, it is our business. You are related to me spiritually. You are my brother, my sister, and I love you. And it is my business because we have been placed by God in this family together. And therefore, I, by default, am obligated to love you as Christ has loved me. Is it going to take time? Yes. Is it going to be awkward? Yes. Is it going to be something that you dread and, re- and hate? Probably so. But let me tell you something. Some of the sweetest, most amazing relationships that I have in my life. I have, a, I have a tendency to be a little straightforward, if you haven't noticed. And sometimes, you know, in these situations and circumstances, I mean, it's hard. But let me tell you something. There are people in this family that I adore and that we have such a phenomenally close and wonderful relationship. And you know what? I sat with them and had the most difficult, horrific conversations with them that you can imagine, time after time after time. I mean, there are multiple, multiple people that these circumstances have happened between me and you personally. And no one else in the room knows about it but me and you. And now we love each other. And we're closer than we ever were before. And God has just done great things in your life. And why? And because when I came to you, I expressed to the best of my ability, I love you. And I never go to anybody until I've wept over them in prayer. If I can't cry for you, I'm not going to confront you. That's my personal rule. But when my heart is broken, and when my Spirit is contrite and I realize that in the blink of an eye it could be me. Then I go. And I sit down and I look at somebody I love and I say, I love you. I love you. And I want to help you. And I'll walk with you as far as we got to walk. I'll go with you as far as we got to go. Let's just go. Let's just get back to where Christ has called us to be. Because you know what? While I was dead in my sins and trespasses, Christ didn't stand back and do nothing. He intervened. He came into this situation. He didn't just look down at earth and say, well, look at all those dummies. They should have known better. I tried to tell them. I put them in a perfect creation and all they could do was ruin it. But He didn't do that. You see, He came. He did something. He loved us. He intervened. And no one will ever go farther. No one will ever pay a higher price. No one ever got more involved. Never, no one ever overcame more obstacles. No one ever faced greater opposition. No one ever, nor ever will they illustrate that true love always gets involved better than Jesus Christ. Our whole testimony hinges on real, true, authentic love intervenes In lives that are careening off a cliff. And we can never forget that. And so maybe you're here this morning and you say, man, this is all new news to me. Well, here's what I want you to understand. I want you to understand that if you're not a member of this family, then when you become a member of this family, this is the way we love. We love each other this way. And we hope and we pray that you'll be a part of us and that you'll help us. And I hope and I pray that in my time of need, you'll be there for me. And I know you will be. I know you will. But you see, that's what love does. But if you don't know Christ this morning, if you are fighting this battle on your own, if ever there was a message... See, this seems like something that was only for the church, and I know it seems like that to you this morning, but listen to me. If ever there was a message that, that just screams to you like a megaphone of hope, you don't have to battle this alone. You don't have to battle this alone. We want to receive you this morning. We want to love you this morning. We want to help you this morning. Maybe you're here this morning and you don't know Christ, and right now you're sitting next to somebody who cared enough to invite you here. And you haven't stopped to realize, wow, you know, they in, why did they invite you here? We don't give money to people for inviting you. I just want you to know that. We don't do that. They're not going to get some kind of star in heaven for that. They did that because they love you. Because they care about you. Because you know what? There's hope here. Jesus is here. And we're not perfect. But here's what we do. We're going to love each other through whatever mess we get into. And we're going to hold each other accountable. And we're going to walk together. And we're going to bring glory to the good news of the gospel to the world out there. And we're not going to stand in here and wonder who's going to go out there. We're going to stand in here and get strength from the Lord and then we're going out there. Because that's what God's called us to do. So know that you have an opportunity today to be loved by God and to be loved by His people. And what a wonderful testimony it is. So you just look around this room. Look at all the differences in us. And yet here we are, brothers and sisters. Amen. Only Jesus can do that. Let's stand and we'll pray together. Pray with me. Father, we thank You, Lord, for Your love. We thank You for Your grace and mercy this morning, God. Thank You for the reminder that, Lord, You above all prove what true love is by Your intervention through the cross and through Jesus Christ. Now, Father, I pray in this time of invitation, Lord, that You would do what only You can do. If there's anyone here that doesn't know You, Lord, They're tired of fighting the battle alone. God, I pray that you'd call them unto yourself. And Lord, they might become part of this family. And you give us the opportunity to love them. Lord, maybe there's someone here who's in the midst of a struggle. They're at the bottom of a ditch this morning, but no one else knows about it. And Lord, this morning, I pray you give them the courage to confess that sin. To confess it. And say, I need some help. And that they would see the body of Christ rally around them. Lord, how many times over and over do we see this body rally around one another and just exhibit your great love? Father, do now what only you can do in Jesus' name. Amen.